It's good to be back here. I think I haven't been here since like August of last year. Um, and I'm going to invite you to turn to First Timothy, or sorry, First Peter. Let's get the book right. First Peter four and and verse uh, seven. Um, that's for those of you that have Bibles. Those of you that have phones, you don't turn to it. You scroll to it, right? Okay, so that's what. There's something there for everybody. And while you're turning that uh, uh, there, I'll remind you that the reason that I'm here is because Pastor Brent, as you know, has been had surgery a few weeks ago, and he's going to be out for several weeks. And uh, as I understand, he's doing just great, and we'll be back before long. But um, but in the meantime, the pastoral staff at the door had to go pretty deep into the bench, so here I am. Uh, but I am glad to be back here. Uh, In 1993, on March 25th, at 5.30 in the morning, uh, my wife and I were living in Hillsborough, Oregon, on a little piece of property outside of town, and I was jolted out of bed by something that uh, I'll never forget in a couple ways. Uh, The first way was it sounded like a freight train was coming right into our living room, or right into our bedroom. I mean, big sound, big rumble, all of that. And the thing was is that there's no railroad tracks within miles of our house. So I got up, and I looked out the window, and then I saw the second thing I'll never forget. Across our property, our property was doing the wave. It was doing this. And we had trees growing out there, and I saw them go like this and go like that, and the wave just kind of went on, and my mouth dropped open, and it was like, this must be an earthquake. And sure enough, it was. It was a a 5.6 magnitude uh, roller, um, what they call column rollers, and I believe that because it came across our property just like a wave. If you've never seen that, you'll remember it. It'll get your attention. Um, anyway, uh, that relatively, they call that the spring break quake, by the way, because it was, you guys remember that? You were over there. Yeah. It shook, yeah. Did you feel the earth move under your feet? Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, that, that relatively minor um, earthquake sparked a renewed interest in something the seismologists, so that's guys that study earthquakes, had known about for a long time, and that's the Cascade Subduction Zone. And that runs all the way 700 miles off of the coast of Oregon from Cape Mendocino, all the way up through Northern California, Oregon, Washington, and clear up to past the north end of Vancouver Island. It's the biggest subduction zone on the earth. And um, so while they kind of knew it was there, this quake that we had, right, kind of renewed interest in this Cascade subduction zone, and people started talking about something they've known about for a long time, they started talking about it again. They call it the big one, the big one. And when is the big one going to come? Well, the Portland School District uh, decided, they kinda, this kind of wake-up call for them, and they decided, well, we don't want the school buildings crashing in on the kids, so they decided they were going to earthquake-proof some of the buildings. My company, which moves trees, or did move trees, um, uh, it was hired to move a big old Japanese maple from right at the corner of Lincoln High School in downtown Portland. And the reason was because they needed to move that tree out of the way so they could get down and do what they needed to to earthquake-proof the building. So we moved the tree, and I kind of hung around for a while, and 
because I've never seen any earthquake work before. I've seen them build buildings. I've seen them dig holes. I've, you know, pretty much everything, but I'd never seen a building earthquake proof before, so I hung around. And so, um, I, so what happened was really surprising to me because I thought they would dig this massive hole and that they would just, you know, pour this massive structure that would, uh, you know, it had to be something really sizable and new and, you know, of latest design and all this kind of stuff, I figured for the, you know, earthquake proof the building. And what, what I saw really surprised me because they just made the hole that we already dug a little bit bigger and a little bit deeper, and they poured a very small concrete jacket on the corner. I was kind of like, that's it? That's all you got to do? I was expecting this big thing. You know, you had to do something. After all, isn't this about the big one? And the guy explained to me, he said, well, you know, really, with uh, uh, earthquake proofing, all you have to do is you have to keep the corners, the foundations in place. The walls can wobble and wave, but as long as the foundation stays in place, the building will stand. I didn't know that. Well, in 1 Peter 4, uh, Peter's kind of saying, the big one's coming. He's saying the end of all things is near. That sounds like a big one to me. He's talking about the return of Jesus Christ, and, and, but it, to the people that he was, he was, he was uh, writing this letter to, they were already experiencing the uh, upheaval of persecution and poverty and just some of the craziness that was going on in the Roman Empire. You think your rulers are crazy? Nero who was in power at Rome at that time, in addition to throwing Christians to the dogs, dipping them in oil, and using them for garden torches, um, actually kicked his second wife to death. He just kicked her to death. And then he turned around and married a guy that looked just like her. He... Uh, he dressed up in wild animal skins and kind of gave expression to some wild animal lusts. I mean, he was known for that. He had his, to make sure that his power wasn't threatened, he uh, had his mother killed and his brother killed. He uh, had a guy, he had actually he had 5,000 soldiers. Get this, they were called Augustans. 5,000 paid soldiers that didn't fight, they didn't march, they didn't do anything. Their whole job was to show up at his events and applaud. 5,000 guys just to do that. Think about the ego. You, th you think we're living in crazy times? And then, of course, the other thing he did was he spent Rome into bankruptcy. But in the midst of all of this going on, uh, Peter's warning that the end of all things is near, the, the, the return of Christ, the upheaval of everything that they considered normal to life was about to end. The big one's coming. The readiness of Christ's return, the end of all things, is as relevant to us today as it was to Peter's friends. So what does he have to say to them and to us about preparing for the end of all things, for the big one? You might assume, like I did, that in preparing for the end of all things is going to require some massive structure, something new, some kind of new design, some kind of new approach because things are so crazy because 
the big one is going to be so big. But like the guys that were working on Lincoln High School, the answer was not something big and new and massive and innovative and all of that. It was simply to strengthen the foundations that were already there. If they stayed intact, the building would stand. So to Peter directs us to, to strengthen the foundations of church life. What are they? And what is it that we need to be pouring those concrete jackets around and strengthening up to be ready not only in these crazy times, but to be ready for Christ's return. What are they? So I titled this sermon. I don't often give titles to sermon. My wife will tell you I struggle with that. I've got a, another place that I preach, and the guy's always bugging me for titles. And I go, I don't know. You know. But anyway, I titled this one, so you're going to get it. It's called Strengthening the Foundations, Solid Advice for Shaky Times. Solid advice for shaky times because we are living in shaky times. And here's the essentials if, if for those of you that are taking any notes. They're very simple. There's just four of them. Think clearly. Love fervently. Share freely. And serve responsibly. That's it. Think clearly love fervently, share freely, and serve responsibly. Now, I just gave you a list. And sometimes I wish, for my own benefit, that the Bible, every time that there's a list of things to do, that there would be a set of flashing yellow lights going off there, going, eh, 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 warning, warning, warning. And the warning is this, and, and, and it's probably the same for you as it is for me, and that is when I read a list, go, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, yeah, I need to do that. And the presumption is, is that you take a deep breath and you jump in. Yeah, God, I got this. No, you don't. You know, the Bible tells us all the time to do things that we can't do. I mean, it, it tells us to do things that are beyond ourselves. Try this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor is yourself. Uh, consider others as more important than yourself. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. You see, all of these things we need the gospel for. We need the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It is because of what Jesus has done and what he, his life can do through us, but only his life can do through us, that we can even tackle these things, that we can even approach them. You know, there was a a bishop in the 4th century that lived in North Africa, his name was Augustine, you've probably heard of him, and he said something that I try to remind myself about when I see a list of things. This is a very simple statement, maybe it'll help you. I think it's helped the church through the ages. He said, God, command whatever you want, but grant whatever you command. See, I'm ready to launch after the first part of that, just command whatever you want, I got it. No, Terry, you don't, and you don't either. We need to appeal to God, to beg God, to ask God for resurrection power of Jesus Christ to even engage, to make any headway at all spiritually in these things. Because, you know, we are, while we are totally responsible uh, before God, we're also totally dependent on God. 
100%, not 50-50, not 70-30, it's 100 and 100. We are totally responsible. Philippians 2.12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's your responsibility, that's my responsibility. And then it goes on to say, for it's God who is at work, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. You get that? Do this, you're responsible. But it's God doing the work. You got total responsibility and total dependency all there in one verse. So that's, that's the warning, that's the caveat with the list. But here is the list. The first thing is to think clearly. In verse 7 it says, The end of all things, be sober-minded, self-controlled for the purpose of prayer. If we are not thinking clearly, I mean, that's elementary basically to life, especially when crazy is going on around us. Because if you're not driving the bus, the bus is driving you if you're not thinking clearly. And, and, and we respond to all kinds of impulses, you know, intuitions, and, 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 and kind of our lives just kind of lurch back and forth from one thing to the other. So Peter's first admonition is to think clearly. To think clearly is to assess things the way that they are. And I believe today, and I bet you'd agree with me, that the biggest threat to clear thinking is fear and anxiety. We've all been rocked by uncertainty. As we've seen the underpinnings of our society, as they were seeing theirs, their culture, their environment, their economy, all fail before their very eyes. And not only is it failing, it's failing fast. And not only is it failing fast, it's failing at an increasing rate. It just seems like it's just, it's, it's, it's going downhill fast. And you wonder, when will it end? How many times have we said that to one another? Well, when's this going to be over? When's this going to return back to normal? Is it going to return back to normal? Is there going to be a bottom to this thing? And if so, what's it going to look like? And, and those fears can run away with us. The, the, the result is fear and anxiety of the future that clouds our thinking and drives us to desperate and sometimes really bizarre behavior. But the problem isn't fear, not fear itself, but it's misplaced fear. We fear the wrong things. In Luke 12, Jesus, knowing that the people that he was talking to were afraid of the Pharisees, and with good reason, because the Pharisees had all the, 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 uh, the religious power, the cultural power, the societal power, the, and, and even the legal power to ruin their lives. And they were afraid, with good reason. But this is what Jesus told them. He said, friends, he said, I say to you, friends, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He was telling them to fear God. He was one saying, there's nothing to be afraid of. He's saying where your fear should reside is in God. Right? Because... As, as um, Michael Reeves writes in his book uh, called Rejoice and Tremble, he says this, it's the right fear of God that relieves us from all other fears. 
If we're rightly fearing God, we're not going to be afraid of the wrong things. You know, but what's happened is somehow in our lives, God has become a lightweight in our mind, kind of a comfort animal, you know, to make us uh, feel sure we feel good instead of a fierce warrior and a guardian. We've, in our thinking, somehow slipped into thinking God is more like a lap dog than a German shepherd. And lap dogs aren't much good when you're under assault by, by fears. Our comfort is to know that our God is a fearsome protector of those that he loves. God's got you. You know, anxious thoughts, I don't think we, we think about what our, our fears do to the way that we think, but Psalms kind of exposes it in Psalm 139. There's a prayer, I believe, of David here that says this, because anxious thoughts are the spawning ground of all kinds of wickedness in our lives, unbelief and the things that flow from it. And he says this, Search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. Bubble them up, God, so I can see them for what they are. He says, Search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Not only the anxious thoughts, but what are those anxious thoughts doing? What kind of wickedness are they producing in me? Interesting. David says that. We need to be thinking about that if we want to be, if we want to be thinking clearly. The, the biblical answer to fear and anxiety is to fear God rightly. And that's a good thing. I delight in the fear of the Lord, the psalmist says in the, uh, Psalm 86:11. Another prayer in the Psalms is, Unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, bring everything that's about me, that's in my core, all into one focus here to fear your name rightly. The fear of the Lord, says Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. Is the beginning of wisdom. And those of you that are really struggling need to hear this next one. When sleep is fleeing from you and you're worried and you're anxious thoughts, listen to what it says about the fear of the Lord. And this is in Proverbs 19.23. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Does that sound good? I mean, that's David in the lion's den, right? That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. They feared God more than they feared what was going on around them. And we know the peace that, that they had. So... Think clearly. That's number one. So you want freedom from anxiety and fear. Here's your answer. Learn what it means to fear God rightly. You want to think clearly? Learn what God says in his word. You know, in Scripture it says, all Scripture is inspired by God. You know, we could stop right there, and that's good enough reason for us to zero down on Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God. Just stop right there. It doesn't stop there, but we could stop there. It says it's profitable for teaching, for, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. 
And what, the, what, a, what a teacher told me a long time ago, and it's been easy to remember for me, so I'll share it with you, is that what that scripture says is, is that all scripture is breathed out by God, and it tells you what's right. It tells you what's wrong. It tells you how to get right, and it tells you how to stay right. All scripture is inspired by God. That's clear thinking. And not only does the scripture inform our, our behavior, the scripture actually gets inside of us and, and, and deals with our motives. There's, there's another scripture in Hebrews 4.12 that says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. So scripture not only informs us in the way that we think and behave, it gets inside us. I have a preacher friend that puts the, the summary of what Hebrews 4.12 says this way. He says, you know, I don't read this book. It reads me. It reads me. You want to think clearly? Be reading God's word and having it read you. In Psalm 19 says a bunch of wonderful things about the, about the word. It says it's perfect to restoring the soul. So sound advice for shaky times, number one, is to think clearly. Number two is to love fervently. Above all, it says in verse 8, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And the kind of love that Peter's talking about here is strong, tough, enduring love for one another. The kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13 says bears all things and endures all things. It holds up, it bears up, it keeps on ticking. That's the kind of love that he's talking about because love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Let's talk about, first of all, what it doesn't mean. When it says that love covers a multitude of sins, it doesn't mean that we as a church, as a group, as a fellowship, just kind of sweep sin under the rug and put it back down. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that, that if there is a brother or a sister that needs to be confronted with the truth and we need to go speak the truth to them in love, uh, covering a multitude of sins doesn't mean that we don't do that. We do do that. And if necessary, as a church, it means that we go through the process of church discipline. And you know why? In Matthew 18, Jesus lays this out very clearly. And I've heard people, I've heard churches say, well, well we don't want to discipline because it, you know, it's hard and, it's, and it doesn't seem like it's loving. But, but you know, it is what love incarnate, it's what Jesus Christ himself said to do. And so when we take that position of not going through and not fulfilling on church discipline, what we're saying is that we know how to love better than Jesus does. We don't want to go there. So love covering a multitude of sins doesn't mean those things. What it does mean is a preoccupation or obsession, if you will, with loving others because of what it prevents. When we are preoccupied and obsessed with the loving of others, with exerting ourselves with loving others, it prevents a preoccupation with being offended. All of us are, have experienced or know about churches 
where the environment in that church is almost toxic because of the tension there is about offenses that are unforgiven and, and, and it's just not healthy, it's not good at all. You know, Galatians 5 gives both sides of this. It's like it's either this or this, Paul says. He says, you shall love your, oh, excuse me, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, that's the one side. That's what Peter's telling us. But over here, he says, but if you de- bite and devour one another, that's the alternative. Um, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Simple way to remember this. If we're loving, we're not biting. My, uh, my wife and I raised two sons, and they're both very active in high school. I mean, if there was a sport, they did it. I mean, it was a football, basketball, wrestling, Soccer, baseball, I don't know what the other ones are. Uh, But if there was one, they did it. And she was in the van going to, taking them to practice and bringing them back. I mean, it was a, it was grueling there for about seven years. I mean, they were, but, but, but the advantage was in her whole philosophy, this, I didn't find this out till later, but her whole philosophy in this was, you know, if they're giving themselves to that, if they're expending all their energy on that, if they're, if they're worn out from sports, they don't have time to get in trouble doing something else. And that's what Peter is saying here. Exert yourself. Wear yourself out on love because it will cover a multitude of sins. It's like he's calling us to fervent love love with stretch marks you know stretch marks i think stretch marks are a beautiful thing on a woman i don't want to get weird on you here but but i do i do because because you know and i watch this with my wife i mean they give their young bodies in a labor of love exerting themselves stretching themselves in love to give birth to precious babies and they carry those marks for the rest of their lives. Every time they look in the mirror, they see them, and they're reminded. So if you look in the mirror of God's word, do you see stretch marks of love? Where you've loved when it's been hard, when it's been costly, when, when the only way that you could do it was with, is, is with the power of Jesus loving through you. Do you see those kind of stretch marks? Or is your love the comfortable kind? The easy kind. That's not what Peter's calling us to. Sound advice for shaky times, number two. Love fervently. Peter's advice in shaky times when things are wonky and weird is to double down on love. The third one, verse 9, share freely. Be hospitable to one another. Wait, without complaint. Be hospitable. Now, we think about hospitality, if you're like me, of having somebody over for a barbecue. And it could include that. But in the first century, it was a lot more than that. Uh, the, 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 the dislocation brought about by persecution and the spread of the gospel and, and, and poverty and, and itinerant evangelists wandering through town. The, these people were in need of basic food and shelter. 
There weren't any red roofs inns to, to send them to. There was no Salvation Army. And Peter is calling them when things are shaky to focus on sharing and hospitality freely. Hospitality is a proof of God's love in our lives. And it's a big deal. You know, I've always thought about hospitality just being kind of one of those add-on things that sounds good to do as a Christian. But at the, Jesus said that at the end of the age, in Matthew chapter 25, you remember the sheep and the goats judgment? That he's going to divide the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand. And they're going to say, well, wait a minute, how come there's this division? What, what's, what's going on? He says, here's the proof of God's love. He said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came to see me. Remember that? That's hospitality. Now, he's not saying it's the hospitality that, that made them sheep, but it's, he's saying that it was the fact that they were sheep made them hospitable. All they saw was the need of Jesus to say, well, when, when do we see you like this? When did that happen? When did and he said, you know, when you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The sheep saw only the need and automatically responded out of love. In fact, hospitality extends itself reflexively to welcome and embrace a need. Somebody said that, defined hospitality this way. They said, hospitality is God's grace overflowing the threshold of our home. I like that. Now, many of us have heard about the dramatic conversion of Rosaria Butterfield. She was, uh, this happened about 20 years ago, she was uh, a PhD uh, from, in English literature from Ohio State University. She was teaching at Syracuse University, and the thing that she was known for, widely known for, was the fact that she was an activist lesbian, and that she had done work, a lot of work, on um, uh, homosexual theory and feminist theory and queer theory. I mean, that's, that was her body of work, if you will. Well, she set out to, uh, because she felt like uh, Christian organizations were, were hateful towards, towards gays and, and those in the uh, alternate community, uh, she started doing some research and she came across Promise Keepers. You guys remember Promise Keepers? Yeah. And so she, um, she did some work on Promise Keepers and then she wrote an article that was very critical of Promise Keepers. So that's the situation. Well, enter a guy by the name of Ken Smith, who was also in Syracuse, and he was the pastor of a Reformed Presbyterian church, okay? And he read that article. He called her up on the phone, and get this, invited her to, invited her to dinner. Think about this. Get your hands around this, your arms. Anyway, you know, you've got a, a raging feminist lesbian over here and a Reformed Presbyterian pastor. That's two different galaxies, right? But he, but he invited her to dinner, not to tear her down or anything. He just wanted to discuss and wanted to treat her like a person. <laughs> well, her relationship with the with the, with the Smiths deepened through many evenings around their dining room table with the result that Rosaria Butterfield was converted to Jesus Christ. Yeah. 
And since then, she's written several Christian books, but the title of her most recent book, I think, is one that we should kind of think about here for a second. This is her writing a book, and the name of the book is this, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. That's how she'd been one when she was invited into somebody's home. The subtitle, by the way, is Practicing Radical Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. What many of us would, seen, would have seen as a radical feminist to be opposed because of their hospitality, the Smiths saw a woman in need of Christ, and they stepped in, leading with their home. Shaky times can distance Christians from one another. Think about the things that COVID has done. I'm sure you have thought about that. And I'm not just talking about the, you know, the distance, the physical distance that we've been advised about. I'm talking about philosophical differences. I'm talking about political divisions recently. And don't our hearts ache when we see brothers and sisters falling away from the church? And, 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 or, or do we just say, well, gee, I wish they'd get their politics right. Or, gee, I wish they'd get the right attitude about wearing a mask. Is our radar locked on correcting them instead of ministering to them? You see, hospitality closes the distance between people and puts the person ahead of the agenda or their issues. Solid advice for shaky times. Number three, share readily. Number four, serve responsibly. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Verse 10 tells us something that every Christian needs to understand and remember. You have a gift if you know Jesus Christ. And you are a steward. You have a gift and you are a steward. Those are not electives. You can't say, I didn't get a gift. Don't know what my gift is. Must not matter. I'm not a steward. Yes, you are. It says so right here. So since that's true, we need to understand that God um, takes stewardship of his stuff very seriously. Now, what a steward was, that's not a common 2021 term. What a steward was is somebody that is in charge of the owner or the master's assets, and he uses them to advance the master's interests. He's been given the master's stuff to advance the master's interests. That's what a steward is. That's what you are. That's what I am. And we're stewards of the, of the gift that God has given them. Now, many people neglect their gift because there's an assumption, it's a wrong one, that if my gift is not an upfront gift, like, you know, visible gift, like preaching or teaching or music or something like that, that it's not important and that their gifts are insignificant or unneeded or that they're just too old to serve. Now, I get physical limitations. They are real. But every time I think about physical limit limitations, I'm rem reminded of Cal Horine. You don't know Cal Horine. I'm sure he's in heaven now. Uh, Cal Horine and his wife. And Cal must have been in his mid-80s the first time I ever met him. 
And uh, he, they, he and his wife both were old and feeble, and, and Cal had a quivered voice. It always sounded like somebody was stepping on his stomach. When he talked to you, it would be like that, you know, and it was kind of hard to listen to. That's how feeble he was. But Cal and Edna loved to bake pies. And so they did. I mean, they, 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 they made pies. That was something that they did. Our church at one time uh, had a Memorial Day retreat where there would be upwards of 200 people there. And Cal and Edna would come in with pies in the trunk, pies in the back seat, pies on the floor, like 50 pies, you know, serving the church. And it was pretty much whenever they came to a church event, whether it was a big one or a little one, because if a cow walked through the door, somebody needed to go out and get the pies because they were there. We called them, <laughs> we called them cow pies, which sounds like cow pies, but, but it's not. But he was Cal the pie man. And Cal, bless his heart, considered this loving service long after his wife was disabled and eventually died. Now, the church could have, could the church, let me rephrase that now, could the church have gotten along without cow's pies? Sure. They sure could have. We sure could have. But I want you to know that food, that the pies that Cal and Edna baked, greased the gears of church fellowship in our church for years. Just with pies. You are gifted. You are a steward that is responsible to God. You can look in the Bible and, and, and look through the list, any list that you want to, and there's several of them in the list of gifts. Pie's not one of them. But serving is. Serving is. And serving is not just going to church, folks. It's like asking somebody, what do you do for a living? Well, I, I go to that building over there. Well, yeah, but what do you do? That's where you work. I mean, that's where, that's where you go. But what do you do? I've decided, if I can remember, which is an issue at my age, but I've decided that in the future, when, I, when I'm in, in, in casual conversation, when I discover that somebody else is a Christian, instead of saying that reflexive question, like, well, where do you go to church? I'm going to say, where do you serve? And then I'm going to follow it up with another one. How do you serve? That's not a, that's not an in-your-face question. That's a vital question. And we need not only to be asking other people, but asking ourselves. And in verse 11, about those gifts, whoever speaks is to do as one who is speaking the utterances of God or oracles of God, if you will. Whoever serves is to do one, is is to do as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, Peter uses the example of preaching here and serving, but it's true about all gifts. Preaching, the oracles of God. Oracles, by the way, that's one of those cool Bible words, right? It's not just a software company, but... Um, it, 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 oracles were words that opened windows. I love that, right? You know, in the Bible, God gave the prophets oracles. They said things that opened windows so people could see God and see about God. But the preacher is responsible to pass on God's word to God's people, period. 
He's not to draw attention to himself. He's not a comedian. He's not a storyteller. He's not an emotional manipulator, but one who simply passes on God's word to God's people as clearly as possible. Now, preaching should use humor. It should use storytelling. It should employ emotional content in the message. But those things must never become the message. Because you see, in effective preaching, preaching that God's calling us to here as an example of a way to, to be a good steward of a gift, it is that kind of faithful preaching, the message eclipses the messenger. Just like the serving should eclipse the server so that people are looking someplace else like, well, where'd this come from? It's got to come from God. The Bible knows nothing about celebrity preachers. I wonder sometimes why we do. It, you know, it's okay to appreciate a good message and, and to appreciate it and to appreciate the preacher. That's okay, just like with any other gift. It's okay to appreciate, and appreciation is good, but adulation is not. That's glory. That belongs to God and God alone. To serve responsibly means to rely on God's strength. You know, it doesn't take God's strength to prepare meals. It doesn't take God's strength to work in the nursery. It doesn't take God's strength to come to church, work days, and work in the building. You don't have one, but you know, you know what I'm talking about. It doesn't take God's strength to do that. What it does take God's strength to do is to persevere in that, to do it when it's hard, so that God gets the glory. That's what it takes God's strength to do. Not going to happen any other way. That should be the preoccupation of God's people, to bring praise, glory, and honor to his name. Peter's saying here, responsible service is all about him. It's not about us. His gifts, his people, his power, and his glory. Now somebody pointed out that there's a flow here, I think, that can help us remember uh, to kind of get, as, as a friend of mine says, get in the sticky side of our brain. Somebody pointed out that there's a flow here, and it goes like this. Responsible service is by the gifts God provides for the purpose God intends, for the glory God deserves. Let me say that again. Responsible service, which is what Peter's calling us to, is by the gifts God provides for the purpose God intends to get the glory God deserves or to, to, to deliver the glory God deserves. So sound advice for shaking times, uh, number four is to serve responsibly. You know, Peter's not the only one who provides solid evidence for shaky times. In 2 Timothy, Paul warns about the big one a different way. He says, in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, sound familiar? Lovers of money, boastful, without self-control, haters of good, and the list goes on and on and on. You've read it, I'm sure you know about it. It's an ugly list. That's the way Paul's talking about it. And so what's the church to do? 
because they describe precisely the shaky times that we're living in. And many, many Christians and, and individually in churches together are feeling the earth move under their feet and trying to formulate you know, responses to each new threat and to each new thing that they see uh, coming up on the horizon and everything that they see that they've, they've kind of uh, thought were, were solid, you know, just kind of fall away. And, and so what's happening is, is trying to respond to all these threats and things. People in churches are just being overwhelmed. Many of you feel anxious and overwhelmed by what you see. Many of us. But Paul's advice to Timothy is not to react, to lurch this way, or to do this, or to try to reinvent this, or try to make something new and massive, or something, a new design to handle these really shaky times. You know, he says, unlike the world that's spiraling around, uh, out of control, Paul offers these words to Timothy. And it's very similar to what Peter says, right? In verse 14, he says, you, Timothy, even though all this stuff is going on around you, these difficult times, you continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. You just keep on. Keep on with the essentials. Keep on with the foundations. Keep on. You don't need to worry about these things. You don't need to reinvent the church you don't need to reinvent your thoughts you don't need to do anything anything other than to just continue on i love that because with fear there's like what are we gonna do and peter says keep doing what you're doing you know thinking clearly loving fervently sharing freely and serving responsibly to the glory of god that's solid advice let's pray lord thank you that uh, none of what we experience what we see going on around us lord is a surprise to you uh, none of it has caught you unaware none of it lord has caught your word and your people without the resources to deal with these things father as the world is becoming more absorbed in in, in the self and and, and things of self. This passage just reeks of one another. Lord, help us to double down on, on, one, on, on one another and serving one another, loving one another, sharing with one another. Father, for your glory, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who gives us this list and also gives us, by his resurrection power, the means to do it. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.